Hello everybody and welcome back to our audiobook series on the formula of Concord and the Solid Declaration. Now, last week we covered righteousness. How is Christ our righteousness? And the, some of the reasons behind sola fide, or that we are justified, declared righteous by faith alone in Christ alone. Well, now we get into part four, where if we're justified by faith alone, what is the part of good works? And, well, how does good works work for us? Let's go ahead and just jump right in here. Uh, Solid Declaration, Article 4, Good Works. A controversy concerning good works has likewise arisen among the theologians of the Augsburg Confession. One party employed such words and formulas as good works are necessary to salvation, and it is impossible to be saved without good works, and no one has been saved without good works, since good works are required of true believers as fruits of faith. And since faith without love is dead, although such love is not a cause of salvation. The other party contended, on the contrary, that good works are indeed necessary, not for salvation, however, but for other reasons. They held that therefore the preceding propositions and formulas are contrary to the form of sound doctrine and words, and have been used by the Papists, now as well as formerly, to oppose that article of our Christian faith in which we confess that faith alone justifies and saves. Hence they held these propositions should not be tolerated in the church, lest the merit of Christ our Redeemer be diminished, and in order to retain for believers the firm and certain promise of salvation." In this controversy, very few asserted the provocative proposition or principle that good works are detrimental to salvation. A few theologians also maintained that good works are not necessary, but spontaneous, since they are not extorted by fear and punishment of the law, but flow from a spontaneous spirit and a joyful heart. Another party took the contrary view that good works are necessary. At first, this latter controversy arose about the words necessary and free, especially the word necessary. This word may refer to the immutable order which obligates and binds all men to be obedient to God, but at times it implies the coercion with which the law forces men to do good works. In the course of time, however, the issue ceased to be only a semantic problem and became a vehemently argued theological controversy when some contended that, because of the divine order referred to above, new obedience is not necessary in the regenerated. In order to explain this disagreement in a Christian way and according to the word of God, and by God's grace to arrive at a complete settlement, we shall state our teaching, belief, and confession. First of all, there is in this article no disagreement among us concerning the following points that it is God's will, ordinance, and command that believers walk in good works, that only those are truly good works which God himself prescribes and commands in his word, and not those that an individual may devise according to his own opinion or that are based on human traditions, that truly good works are not done by a person's own natural powers, but only after a person has been reconciled to God through faith and renewed through the Holy Spirit. 
or as St. Paul says, has been created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's Ephesians 2, verse 10. Neither is there a controversy among us as to how and why the good works of believers are pleasing and acceptable to God, even though they are still impure and imperfect in this flesh of ours. We agree that this is so for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ through faith, uh, because the person is acceptable to God. For works which belong to the maintenance of outward discipline, and which unbelievers and the unconverted are also able and required to perform, are indeed praiseworthy in the sight of the world, and even God will reward them with temporal blessings in this world. But since they do not flow from true faith, they are sinful, that is, spattered with sins in the sight of God. And God regards them as sin and as impure because of our corrupted nature and because the person is not reconciled with God. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit, as Matthew 7.18 says, and whatsoever does not proceed from faith is sin, Romans 14, verse 23. The person must first be pleasing to God, and that alone for Christ's sake, before that person's works are pleasing. Hence, faith alone is the mother and source of the truly good and God-pleasing works that God will reward, both in this and in the next world. For this reason, St. Paul calls them fruits of faith or of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22 and Ephesians 5.9. For, as Luther writes in his preface to the epistle of St. Paul to the Romans, Faith is a divine work in us that transforms us and begets us anew from God, kills the old Adam, makes us entirely different people in heart, spirit, mind, and all our powers, and brings the Holy Spirit with us. Oh, faith is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, so that it is impossible for it not to be constantly doing what is good. Likewise, faith does not ask if good works are to be done. But before one can ask, faith has already done them and is constantly active. Whoever does not perform such good works is a faithless man, blindly tapping around in search of faith in good works without knowing what either faith or good works are. And in the meantime, he chatters and jabbers a great deal about faith in good works. Faith is a vital, deliberate trust in God's grace, so certain that it would die a thousand times for it. And such confidence and knowledge of divine grace makes us joyous, meddlesome, and merry toward God and all creatures. This the Holy Spirit works by faith, and therefore, without any coercion, a man is willing and desirous to do good to everyone, to serve everyone, to suffer everything for the love of God and to his glory, who has been so gracious to him. It is therefore as impossible to separate works from faith as it is to separate heat and light from fire. But since on these points there has been no controversy among us, we shall discuss them no further, but shall explain only the controverted points simply and clearly. In the first place, it is evident that in discussing the question whether good works are necessary or free, both the Augsburg Confession and its Apology often employ formulas like these, good works are necessary. Again, it is necessary to do good works because they necessarily follow faith and reconciliation. Again, we should and must of necessity do good works that God has commanded. 
Uh, likewise, Holy Scripture itself uses words like necessity, necessary, needful, should, and must to indicate what we are bound to do because of God's ordinance, commandment, and will. Romans 13, 5, uh, 6, and 9. Yeah, thir chapter 13, 5, 6, and 9. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 9. Acts 5, 29. John 15, verse 12. And 1 John 4, 11. It is wrong, therefore, to criticize and reject the cited propositions and formulas when they are used in their strict and Christian sense, as some have done. They should rightly be used and urged to criticize and reject a complacent Epicurean delusion, since many people dream up for themselves a dead faith or superstition without repentance and without good works as if there could simultaneously be in a single heart both a right faith and a wicked intention to continue and abide in sin, which is impossible. For as if a person could have and retain true faith, righteousness, and salvation, even though he still is and continues to be a barren, unfruitful tree, since no good fruits appear, yes, even though he were to persist in sins against conscience, or embark deliberately on such sins again, which is impious and false. Here, however, it is necessary to keep a distinction in mind, namely that when the word necessary is used in this context, it is not to be understood as implying compulsion, but only as referring to the order of God's immutable will, whose debtors we are, as his commandment indicates when it enjoins the creature to obey its creator. Elsewhere, as in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Philemon 14, and 1 Peter 5, verse 2, necessity is used with reference to that which is extorted from a purpose from a person against his will, by coercion or otherwise, so that he does externally for a pretense something that is really unwilled by him, or even contrary to his will. Such works of pretense God does not want. On the contrary, the people of the New Testament are to be a people who offer themselves freely, Psalm 110, verse 3, who bring free will offering, Psalm 54, verse 6, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but with obedience from the heart, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, and Romans 6, verse 7, because God loves a cheerful giver, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. With this meaning and in this sense, it is right to say and teach that truly good works are to be done willingly from a spontaneous spirit by those whom the Son of God has set free. It was chiefly in this interest that many defended the proposition that good works are spontaneous. Here again, careful attention must be given to the distinction which Paul makes when he says, on the one hand, Romans 7 verses 22 and 23, that he is willing and delights in the law of God in his inmost self, and on the other, that in his flesh he finds another law which is not only unwilling or unenthusiastic, but actually wars against the law of his mind. Concerning this unwilling and recalcitrant flesh, Paul says, I pommel my body to subdue it, 1 Corinthians 9 verse 27, and again, they who belong to Christ have crucified, that is, killed their flesh with its passions, desires, and deeds. Galatians 5.24 and Romans 8.13. But we reject and condemn as false the view that good works are 
free to believers in the sense that it lies within their free option if they may or want to do or not do them, or to act in a contrary fashion and nonetheless still retain faith and God's mercy and his grace. Secondly, when we teach that good works are necessary, we must also explain why and for what causes they are necessary, as the Augsburg Confession and the Apology have done. But here we must be extremely careful that works are not drawn into and mingled with the article of justification and salvation. Therefore, we correctly reject the proposition that good works are necessary for the believer's salvation, or that it is impossible to be saved without good works, since such propositions are directly contrary to the doctrine of exclusive terms in the Articles of Justification and Salvation. That is, they are diametrically opposed to St. Paul's words, which exclude our works and merit completely from the Article of Justification and Salvation, and ascribe everything solely to the grace of God and the merit of Christ, as was explained in the preceding article. Furthermore, these propositions deprive tempted and troubled consciences of the consolation of the gospel, give occasion for doubt, are dangerous in many ways, confirm presumptuous trust in one's own righteousness and confidence in one's own good works, and are adopted by the papists and used to their own advantage against the pure doctrine of salvation by faith alone. Thus they are contrary to the pattern of sound words, like the scripture passage which ascribes the bliss of salvation solely to the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works, Romans 4, verse 6. Or the statement in Article 6 of the Augsburg Confession, we are saved without works solely by faith. Luther also has rejected and condemned these propositions. One, in the case of the false prophets among the Galatians. Two, in his writings against the Papists at many places. Three, in his writings against the Anabaptists, who advanced this interpretation, quote, we should indeed not put our faith in the merit of our works, but we must nevertheless have them as something necessary for salvation, end quote. And four, furthermore, in the case of some of his own followers who attempted to explain the proposition that, by saying that although we required good works as necessary to salvation, we nevertheless do not teach people to put their trust in their works. Hence, and for these reasons, it is right for our churches to continue to insist that the aforementioned propositions are not to be taught, defended, or condoned, but are to be expelled and rejected by our churches as false and incorrect, and as issues which in times of persecution, when it was particularly important to have a clear and correct confession against all sorts of corruptions and counterfeiting in the article of justification, were raised again as a result of the interim, flowed forth from it, and were made matters of controversy. In the third place, a disputation has arisen as to whether good works preserve salvation or are necessary to preserve faith, righteousness, and salvation. This, of course, is a serious and important question, since only he who endures to the end will be saved, Matthew 24, verse 13, and, quote, we share in Christ only if we hold our first confidence firm to the end. end quote. Hebrews 3.14 For this reason, it is important to declare well and in detail how righteousness and salvation are preserved in us so that we do not lose them again. Therefore, we must begin by earnestly criticizing and rejecting the false Epicurean delusion 
which some dream up that it is impossible to lose faith in the gift of righteousness and salvation once it has been received, through any sin, even a wanton and deliberate one, or through wicked works, and that even though a Christian follows his evil lusts without fear and shame, resists the Holy Spirit, and deliberately proceeds to sin against his conscience, he can nevertheless retain faith, the grace of God, righteousness, and salvation. We should often, with all diligence and earnestness, repeat and impress upon Christians who have been justified by faith these true and immutable in divine threats and earnest punishments and admonitions. Quote, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers will inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. Quote, those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God, Galatians 5.21 and Ephesians 5 verse 5. Quote, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, Romans 8.13. And finally, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, Colossians 3 verse 6. The Apology offers a fine example as to when and how, on the basis of the preceding, the exhortation to do good works can be instilled without darkening the doctrine of faith and justification. In explaining 2 Peter 1 verse 10, uh, be the more zealous to confirm your call and election, end quote, the Apology states in Article 20, Peter teaches why we should do good works, namely that we confirm our calling, that is, that we do not fall from our calling by lapsing again into sin. He says, do good works so that you remain in your heavenly calling, lest you fall away and lose the Spirit and his gifts, which you have not received because of your subsequent works, but which have come to you by grace through Christ, in which you retain through faith. Faith, however, does not remain in those who lead a wicked life, lose the Holy Spirit, and reject repentance. It does not, however, mean that Faith accepts righteousness and salvation only at the beginning, and then delegates this function to works as if works should henceforth preserve faith, the righteousness that has been received, and salvation. On the contrary, in order that the promise that we shall not only receive but also retain righteousness and salvation may be very certain to us, Paul ascribes to faith not only our entry into grace, but also our present state of grace and our hope of sharing the glory of God. Romans 5 verse 2. In other words, he attributes to faith alone the beginning, the middle, and the end of everything. Likewise, he says, They were broken off because of their unbelief, and you stand fast only through faith. Romans 11 verse 20. He will present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided you continue in the faith. Colossians 1, verse 22. And then, finally, by God's power we are guarded through faith for a salvation, and again, as the outcome of your faith, you obtain the salvation of your souls. 1 Peter 1, verses 5 and 9. Since it is evident from the word of God that faith is the proper and the only means whereby righteousness and salvation are not only received but also preserved by God, we rightly reject the decree of the Council of Trent, and anything else that tends toward the same opinion, namely that our good works preserve salvation, or that our works either entirely or in part sustain and preserve either the righteousness of faith that we have received, or even faith itself. 
For although prior to this controversy, not a few Orthodox teachers used these and similar formulas in expounding Holy Scripture without in any way intending to confirm the aforementioned error of the Papists, yet since a controversy subsequently arose on this point which led to many offensive exaggerations, it is safest to follow the advice of St. Paul to maintain the pattern of sound words as well as the true doctrine itself, 2 Timothy 1 verse 13. This would eliminate much useless wranglings and preserve the church from many offenses. In the fourth place, concerning the proposition that good works are supposed to be detrimental to salvation, uh, that's Nicholas von Amsdorf, by the way, we give the following clear answer. If anyone draws good works into the article of justification and rests his righteousness or his assurance of salvation on good works in order to merit the grace of God and to be saved thereby, it is not we, but Paul himself, who declares no less than three times in Philippians 3.7 that good works not only are useless and an impediment to such a person, but are actually harmful. The fault, however, lies not with the good works themselves, but with the false confidence which, contrary to the express word of God, is being placed upon good works. But it does not follow, here from, that one may say without any qualification that good works are detrimental to believers as far as their salvation is concerned. For when good works are done on account of right causes and for right ends, that is, with the intention that God demands of the regenerated, they are an indication of salvation in believers. Philippians 1 verse 28. It is God's will and express command that believers should do good works which the Holy Spirit works in them. And God is willing to be pleased with them for Christ's sake. And he promises to reward them gloriously in this and in the future life. Hence our churches condemn and reject this proposition too. Because when asserted without explanation, it is false and offensive, might weaken discipline and decency, and might introduce and confirm a wicked, wild, complacent, and epicurean way of life. For one ought to avoid with the greatest diligence whatever is detrimental to one's salvation. But since Christians are not to be deterred from good works, but are most diligently to be admonished and urged to apply themselves to good works, we cannot and should not tolerate, teach, or defend this proposition unqualifiedly stated in our churches. Article 5. Law and Gospel. So, everybody's Lutheran ears here per perking up at oh, Law and Gospel, our favorite of topics. <laughs> law and Gospel. The distinction between law and gospel is an especially brilliant light which serves the purpose that the word of God may be rightly divided, and the writings of the holy prophets and apostles may be explained and understood correctly. We must therefore observe this distinction with particular diligence, lest we confuse the two doctrines and change the gospel into law. This would darken the merit of Christ and rob disturbed consciences of the comfort which they would otherwise have in the Holy Gospel when it is preached purely and without admixture. For by it, Christians can support themselves in their greatest temptations against the terrors of the law. On this point, too, there has been a controversy among some theologians of the Augsburg Confession. One party claimed that, strictly speaking, the Gospel is not only a proclamation of grace, 
but also at the same time a proclamation of repentance, which rebukes the greatest sin, unbelief. The other party, however, maintained and contended that, strictly speaking, the gospel is not a proclamation of repentance or reproof. This, they said, is strictly a function of the law of God, which reproves all sins, including unbelief, whereas the gospel, in its strict sense, is a proclamation of the grace and mercy of God for Christ's sake, which proclamation assures those who have been converted to Christ that their unbelief, in which they formerly had been mired, in which the law of God reproved, has been pardoned and forgiven. When we rightly reflect on this controversy, we find that it was chiefly occasioned by the fact that the little word gospel does not always have one and the same meaning, but is used in a twofold way, both in the Holy Scripture of God and by ancient and modern theologians. In the one case, the word is used in such a way that we understand it by it the entire teaching of Christ our Lord, which in his public ministry on earth and in the New Testament he ordered to be observed. Here, the term includes both the exposition of the law and the proclamation of the mercy and grace of God, his heavenly Father. As it is written in Mark 1 verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Shortly thereafter, the chief parts are announced, namely repentance and forgiveness of sins, Mark 1 verse 4. Similarly, when Christ, after his resurrection, commands his apostles to preach the gospel in all the world, Mark 16 verse 15, he summarizes his doctrine in a few words, quote, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. End quote. That's uh, Luke 24, verses 46 and 47. Likewise, Paul calls his entire teaching the gospel, Acts 20, verse 24, and summarizes it under these heads, repentance to God and faith in Christ. And when the word gospel is used in its broad sense, and apart from the strict distinction of law and gospel, it is correct to define the word as the proclamation of both repentance and the forgiveness of sins. For John, Christ and the apostles began in their preaching with repentance and expounded and urged not only the gracious promise of the forgiveness of sins, but also the divine law. In addition, however, the word gospel is also used in another, that is, in a strict sense. Here it does not include the proclamation of repentance, but solely the preaching of God's grace. So it appears shortly afterward in the first chapter of St. Mark, where Christ said, Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark 1, verse 15. Again, the little word repentance is not used in a single sense in Holy Scripture. In some passages of Holy Writ, the word is used and understood as the entire conversion of man, as in Luke 13, verse 5, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And in Luke 15, verse 7, even so there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. But in the cited passage in Mark 1, verse 15, and in other places where repentance and faith in Christ, Acts 20, 21, or repentance and forgiveness of sins, Luke 24, 46, are distinguished from one another, the phrase to repent means nothing more than to truly recognize one's sins, and to feel heartily sorry for them, and to desist from them. This knowledge comes from the law, but it is not sufficient for a salutary conversion to God unless there is added faith in Christ, 
whose merit the comforting proclamation of the Holy Gospel offers to all penitent sinners who have been terrified by the proclamation of the law. For the Gospel does not preach the forgiveness of sin to indifferent and secure hearts, but to the oppressed or penitent, Luke 4.18. And in order that contrition or the terrors of the law may not end in despair, the proclamation of the gospel must be added so that it becomes a contrition that leads to salvation, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. The more preaching of the law without Christ, uh, the mere preaching of the law without Christ, either produces presumptuous people who believe that they can fulfill the law by external works, or drives man to utterly to despair. Therefore, Christ takes the law into his hands and explains it spiritually, Matthew 5.21, Romans 7.6, and Romans 7.14. Thus he reveals his wrath from heaven over all sinners and shows how great his wrath is. This directs the sinner to the law, and there he really learns to know his sin, an insight that Moses could never have wrung out of him. For Paul testifies that although Moses is read, the veil which he put over his face remains unremoved, so that they do not see the law spiritually or how much it requires of us, or how severely it curses and condemns us because we could not fulfill or keep it. When a man turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 13 through 15. Therefore, the Spirit of Christ must not only comfort but through the office of the law must also convict, convince the world of sin. Thus, even in the New Testament, he must perform what the prophet calls a strange deed, Isaiah 28, verse 21, that is, to rebuke, until he comes to his own work, that is, to comfort and to preach about grace. To this end, Christ has obtained and sent us the Spirit, and for this reason the latter is called the paraclete, as Luther explains it in his exposition of the gospel for the fifth Sunday after Trinity, he states, quote, Everything that preaches about our sin in the wrath of God, no matter how or when it happens, is the proclamation of the law. On the other hand, the gospel is a proclamation that shows and gives nothing but grace and forgiveness in Christ. At the same time, it is true and right that the apostles and the preachers of the gospel, just as Christ himself did, confirm the proclamation of the law, and begin with the law in the case of those who as yet neither know their sins nor are terrified by the wrath of God, as he says in John 16, verse 8, The Holy Spirit will convince the world of sin because they do not believe in me. In fact, where is there, where is there more a earnest and terrible revelation and preaching of God's wrath over sin than the passion and death of Christ his own Son? But as long as all this proclaims the wrath of God and terrifies man, it is not yet the gospel nor Christ's own proclamation, but it is Moses and the law pronounced upon the unconverted. For the gospel and Christ are not ordained and given us to terrify or to condemn us, but to comfort and lift upright those who are terrified and disconsolate. And again, Christ says, The Holy Spirit will convince the world of sin, John 16, verse 8 which cannot be done without the explanation of the law. In the same vein, the Schmalkald articles state, the New Testament retains and performs the office of the law, which reveals sin and God's wrath. But to this office, it immediately adds the promise of God's grace through the gospel. 
And the Apology says, The preaching of the law is not sufficient for genuine and salutary repentance. The gospel must also be added to it. Thus, both doctrines are always together, and both of them have to be urged side by side, but in proper order and with the correct distinction. Therefore, we justly condemn the antinomians or nomoclasts who cast the preaching of the law out of the churches, and would have us criticize sin and teach contrition and sorrow not from the law, but solely from the gospel. But in order that everyone may see that we are concealing nothing in this present controversy, but are presenting the entire matter nicely and clearly for the Christian reader, we submit the following. We unanimously believe, teach, and confess, on the basis of what we have said, that, strictly speaking, the law is a divine doctrine which reveals the righteousness and immutable will of God, shows how man ought to be disposed in his nature, thoughts, words, and deeds, in order to be pleasing and acceptable to God, and threatens the transgressors of the law with God's wrath and temporal and eternal punishment. For as Luther says against the nomoclasts, everything that rebukes sin is and belongs to the law, the proper function of which is to condemn sin and lead to a knowledge of sin. Romans 3 verse 20 and 7 verse 7. Since unbelief is a root and fountainhead of all culpable sin, the law reproves unbelief also. But it is also true that the gospel illustrates and explains the law and its doctrine. Nevertheless, the true function of the law remains to rebuke sin and to give instruction about good works. This is the way in which the law rebukes unbelief, when a person does not believe the word of God. Since the gospel, which alone, strictly speaking, teaches and commands faith in Christ, is the word of God, the Holy Spirit, through the office of the law, rebukes the unbelief involved in men's failure to believe in Christ. Nevertheless, this gospel alone, strictly speaking, teaches about saving faith in Christ. The gospel, however, is that doctrine which teaches what a man should believe in order to obtain the forgiveness of sins from God. Since man has failed to keep the law of God and has transgressed it, his corrupted nature, thoughts, words, and deeds war against the law, and he is therefore subject to the wrath of God, to death, to temporal miseries, and to the punishment of hellfire. The content of the gospel is this, that the Son of God, Christ our Lord, himself assumed and bore the curse of the law, and expiated and paid for all our sins, that through him alone we re-enter the good graces of God, obtain forgiveness of sins through faith, are freed from death and all the punishments of sin, and are saved eternally. For everything which comforts and which offers the mercy and grace of God to transgressors of the law, strictly speaking, is, and is called, the gospel a good and joyful message that God wills not to punish sins, but to forgive them for Christ's sake. Accordingly, every penitent sinner must believe, that is, he must put his confidence solely on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification, Romans 4.25, who was made sin, though he knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21 who was made our righteousness, 1 Corinthians 1.30, and whose obedience is reckoned to us as righteousness in the strict judgment of God. Thus the law, as previously explained, is an office which kills through the letter and is a dispensation of condemnation, 
2 Corinthians 3, 6, and 9. But the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. Romans 1 verse 16, a dispensation of righteousness again and of the spirit. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 8. Dr. Luther very diligently urged this distinction in nearly all his writings and showed in detail that there is a vast difference between the knowledge of God which comes from the gospel and that which is taught by and learned from the law, since the natural law, even the heathen, had to some extent a knowledge of God, although they neither understood nor honored him rightly. Romans 1 verse 21. Since the beginning of the world, these two proclamations have continually been set forth side by side in the church of God with the proper distinction. The descendants of the holy patriarchs, like the patriarchs themselves, constantly reminded themselves not only how man in the beginning was created righteous and holy by God, and through the deceit of the serpent transgressed God's laws, became a sinner, corrupted himself and all his descendants, and plunged them into death and eternal damnation, but also revived their courage and comforted themselves with the proclamation of the woman's seed who would bruise the serpent's head. Genesis 3 verse 15. Likewise, the seed of Abraham, by whom all nations should be blessed. Uh, Genesis 22, 18 and 28, 14. Likewise, of David's son, who would restore the kingdom of Israel and be a light to the nations. That is... Um, Psalm 110 verses 1 and Isaiah 40 verse 10, 49 verse 6. Who was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities and with whose stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53 verse 5. We believe and confess that these two doctrines must be urged constantly and diligently in the church of God until the end of the world. But without the due distinction... So that in the ministry of the New Testament, the proclamation of the law and its threats will terrify the hearts of the unrepentant and bring them to a knowledge of their sin and to repentance, but not in such a way that they become despondent and despair therein. Rather, since the law was our custodian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith, Galatians 3.24, and hence points and leads not away from, but toward the Christ who is the end of the law, Romans 10 verse 4, the proclamation of the gospel of our Lord Christ will once more comfort and strengthen them with the assurance that if they believe the gospel, God forgives them all their sins through Christ, accepts them for his sake as God's children, and out of pure grace without any merit of their own, justifies and saves them. But this does not mean that men may abuse the grace of God and sin against grace. This distinction between the law and the gospel is thoroughly and mightily set forth by St. Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 through 9. For this reason, and in order that both doctrines, law and gospel, may not be mingled together and confused, so that what belongs to one doctrine is ascribed to the other, it is necessary to urge and to maintain with all diligence the true and proper distinction between law and gospel, to diligently and diligently to avoid anything that might give occasion for a confusion between them, by which the two doctrines would be tangled together and made into one doctrine. Such a confusion would easily darken the merits and benefits of Christ, once more make the gospel a teaching of law, as happened in the papacy, and thus rob Christians of the true comfort, which they have in the gospel against the terrors of the law, and reopen the door to the papacy in the church of God. 
It is therefore dangerous and wrong to make of the gospel, strictly so called in distinction from the law, a proclamation of repentance and punishment. Elsewhere, however, when it is generally understood as referring to the entire teaching, a usage that we find occasionally in the Apology too, the gospel is a proclamation both of repentance and of forgiveness of sins. But the Apology also indicates that, strictly speaking, the gospel is the promise of forgiveness of sins and justification through Christ, whereas the law is a message that rebukes and condemns sin. Well, amen and amen, everybody. We are going to go next week into the third function of the law, or the third use of the law. I'm super excited for that. And I like this kind of cliffhanger thing. If I, if I go two articles by two articles here, we get to ruminate on stuff and then build on it the next week. So can't wait to see you all next week for Article 6. God bless.